Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Artful Athlete podcast. We're back for another mindful chat, and today I brought in a very special guest. We've talked a lot. We've talked about languages. We've talked about how he lives in a sunny country, and I don't. But we've also talked about breath, being in ice, relaxing, and embracing so many aspects of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Rob. Hi, Rob. Hello there. It's fantastic to be on. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to come onto the podcast. Look at us being so civilized and so nice with each other. Uh, no anxiety, no pressure, just talking. And yeah, speaking of anxiety and pressure, you literally just told me you don't like speaking in public. And yet you got a podcast. What the heck? I do have a podcast. However, now I kind of feel like I should put on like a ridiculous French accent just to, uh, you know, just to kind of feel more at home on this podcast of uh, extreme accents, whether that's English or French or oh, whatever. Wow. Extreme <laughs> accents. Oh, wow. But I mean, you're in Spain. You should be trying to do a Spanish accent. Ole. Ole. Hola. <laughs> Sorry, Roberto. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that's how it starts points for trying and uh and if you don't try then you never get and at least trying regularly means that you're getting the language in your body even if it's going if it means going through a phase of potentially having a thick accent it's better to do that than freaking out about oh not being able to pronounce it absolutely yeah i think my uh my my spanish is is okay at best you know i definitely get get by but yeah, I uh, I am not a linguist uh, like yourself, and uh, picking up on the the kind of the accent and the flow um, of the Spanish language for me, it's really difficult. But you know, this is this is part of the problem, you know, of being of being English and trying to learn another language. We're just useless at languages, unfortunately. You know, we tend to um, to learn a second language um, at secondary school. But it's a joke. Nobody takes it seriously. Nobody actually expects to, to learn the language properly by the time they leave. Whereas I think on the continent, you know, like uh, certainly in, in Germany and, um, you know, in, in Scandinavia, you know, these, these people, they're, they're amazing, you know, by, by kind of age eight or nine, most of them are already fluent in English. Okay, it's, it's, Maybe they listen to um, their, their podcasts and radio shows and TV, YouTube in, in English. So they have that advantage. But, you know, it is pretty amazing how bad we are in England uh, languages. <laughs> I like that you're saying. So basically, when you go to school in Britain to learn a language, you're not expected to have learned anything by the end. There's, there's I think there's a, an expectation of you like learning how to conjugate some verbs, uh -huh. perhaps, you know, to, to, to maybe learn some past tense if you're, if you're doing really well. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the level, the, le the level is ridiculous and it, it comes down to expectations, you know, like um, it's just most people aren't really bothered. They're, they're more focused on, on, uh, on other things. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pity. But so I, I learned Spanish at age... 30 and you know picking up a language at age 30 is <laughs> it's uh obviously 100 doable but yeah a lot harder and particularly with with the accent i find it i find it really hard but you know it's uh it's also a joy to to practice and to learn and to converse you know in another language so yeah it's a it's a nice thing to do it's got a completely different rhythm it's a different melody if you look at languages like you would a symphony each language is a movement each accent is an instrument within that movement so it's about finding how it sings and then on one part so you've got the rhythm and then bringing it into the mouth bringing it into the body literally just so that you can actually get the geography of the sound then but yeah no it's it's past a certain age if you've also just only spoken one language or only focused on one language or another language within your system, um, then yes, it gets it can get a little bit tricky because you need to loosen up some muscles in the cheeks or in the tongue in order to get the sound to the standards of pronunciation, if you will. Yeah, yeah, but no, but, what, you know, when you break it down in the way you just did, 
you know, it, this is true. It is, it is, you have to kind of learn in a way how to uh, impersonate by, by making the right shapes and, and choosing the, you know, really studying the language and the flow. And it's just really, really hard for, for, for English people. I mean, so many of my friends here are exactly the same. Like they've learned the language, they know how to speak it. They know the conjugation, they know like the different verb uh, forms and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, language, but the pronunciation is awful. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> the, the, the most important thing to learn was, you know, the, the irregular verbs and all that. I know that from having spoken to quite a few people when I say hi in French, like, oh, your grammar is horrible. I am fully aware of it. I am sorry you had to go through this. Does it change your life on the daily basis? Like, has it made you a better or a worse speaker? And then, hmm, I think worse because I'm constantly thinking about not getting it right. And then because mm. of that, because you have this fear that you're going to mess up the grammar and therefore you're going to mess up the word and therefore your sentence is going to be not understandable, then it just, it makes speaking another language even more terrifying yeah I think you're right I think you're right and I think perhaps with French you know there's even more pressure because <laughs> people have this idea that that French people especially uh Parisians are going to uh criticize you for your bad French but that's and what so... Parisians do that's what Parisians <laughs> do with everything I'm from outside of Paris so to the world I'm Parisian okay. to well, me there we go. no but that's all they do that's all they do yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> well it kind of you know it kind of because we've obviously just recorded a podcast before this one and um we were kind of talking about this is this this was a, a really big theme of you know the previous uh podcast where we were discussing the importance of finding your funk no of uh of enjoying the experience so often with spanish i noticed that after one beer my Spanish level will improve dramatically because I'm just in a bit more of a relaxed, happy mood. And suddenly, you know, I'm able to just be in a bit more of a flow state and let go a little bit and get into the rhythm of the language. And, you know, I enjoy it a bit more. And, um, you know, you let go of some of that anxiety and fear. Unfortunately, you know, anxiety and fear, it gets in the way of so many things that I really think with learning a language, you know, you've really got to just get out there and put yourself out there and try to enjoy it. Because when you do, you're going to, you're going to learn a lot more. Um, you might become an alcoholic in the process, but you know, it's all good. Please, uh, to everyone and anyone learning a language, don't become alcoholics. Don't just drink in order, because you may remember some of the words, but you may not remember everything. And I don't Maybe wanna, that's my problem. May, I, I don't want to. I don't want us to be responsible for this. So drink with caution. But yes, if you've loosened up a little bit uh, before, it will make it a lot easier to express yourself. Yeah, there's a cutoff point. There's basically yeah. once you once you reach three or four beers, then you know your performance really starts to go downhill. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lesson to be learned there for sure. Uh -huh. So you've learned hardcore lessons from uh, Cuatro Cervezas. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. See. <laughs> See. It's, it's 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 so funny because we were talking about anxiety, and we've talked a lot about you know, and overcoming anxiety and, and coming back to the body in, in the previous podcast that we recorded. So when you're helping people overcome anxiety or working with anxiety, is it something, so you're not encouraging people to have four beers before coming to you, obviously. Um, <laughs> so what is it that you advise to do in order to handle it a bit better? Yeah, I mean, so there's so many different uh, things that we could talk about with this. I mean, we just spent a fair amount of time discussing the importance of coming into the body and, and kind of mindfulness-based practices. You know, this, this for me is, is so important. I mean, with my own struggles with, with um, you know, OCD and anxiety, I struggled with, uh, I have struggled with OCD from the age of 16. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't even know that I had OCD. It was just, uh, I was really struggling. I was completely lost 
you know, through those kind of teenage years and early 20s that are meant to be, you know, the best time of your life when we're under this pressure to be having a great time. And I was just miserable because I had this mental health challenge that I didn't know anything about. And it's not like now where there's loads of information on the internet and social media, you know, we're talking about 1998. So the internet was just getting started. So yeah, it was a real struggle. And um, it wasn't until I was kind of, you know, maybe 25, 26, that I started to find out about mindfulness. And, um, you know, this was really a godsend for me, because, you know, I came across the concept of acceptance. Up until that point, I'd be doing everything I could to try to fight with anxiety, um, to try to get rid of it. This very kind of masculine, traditional idea of fighting, you know, getting your way through uh, a difficult um, situation through hardship. And that was my approach, you know, not opening up to people because I thought that was like weak, you know, which is ridiculous. But this was the kind of uh, way that, you know, British people, particularly, you know, in the past, have viewed mental health problems is that you should grin and bear it, you should, uh, you know, just get on and don't show other people that you're struggling, keep pushing and find a way to get through. And so my approach up until that point of coming across mindfulness was one of pushing away, pushing it down. Alcohol at one stage was a way of doing that as well. You know, all of these unhelpful, unhealthy kind of patterns that I picked up over time until I came across acceptance. And little by little from that point, things started to change. And so I think, you know, the main, the main kind of concept that I'm trying to, uh, to work uh, with people on is, is this, this theme of acceptance, unconditional acceptance, self-love, compassion. These are the things that I had no idea about and that have made you know, such an enormous difference to, to me in my life uh, since that, you know, since fortunately coming across mindfulness in my mid-20s. When you say acceptance, because I feel it's a big word. <laughs> it's got many letters. But it's also, it's true, you, you have to first accept the situation that you're in. But how do you get someone to that level? How can you help and support someone on their journey to accept? And, and it's not even just accept themselves, but accept everything about themselves. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, I actually really struggled myself initially with acceptance because you know i read this book by uh, john kabat-zinn one of the kind of pioneers of, of mindfulness and it was called the full catastrophe living you know and he was explaining this kind of you know the the tradition of, of people in western culture of getting stuck in the rat race and pushing away all of these difficult emotions and and just grinning and bearing it as I was kind of talking about and this is the kind of full catastrophe living and yeah the antidote is acceptance but when I first read about it I fully understood what he meant you need to allow yourself to feel all of these difficult emotions that you're pushing away because ultimately these emotions are not bad they are uncomfortable. They may not be nice. You may not want to experience them. However, what you can learn is actually they are neutral. It's you flavoring them with something by pushing them away that is actually making them a very negative experience. Even, I mean, so John Kabat-Zinn was, was working with people in the 80s with very severe pain. And he, you know, the, these people like, you know, painkillers were just not touching the pain. It was talking about very, very serious pain. And what he was able to do with these people was amazing. You know, he had, he taught them mindfulness and the reduction that these people had in their, their experience of pain was dramatic. Okay, maybe it didn't disappear altogether. However, through acceptance, they were able to transform that experience experience of what pain actually is and I think you know for me I've been spending years blocking emotional pain trying to push it down which was obviously just making it worse and worse over time um, and so what I first initially gauged from acceptance is that okay if I want to start feeling less anxiety 
if I want to be able to show up in my life and, and actually attempt to be happy, then, you know, I have to start accepting. I have to start allowing these uncomfortable uh, emotions. But the thing is that it's hard. I found it really difficult at first because the anxiety was so intense. The other emotions that I, I was experiencing were so intense that I couldn't do it. I just, and it, it almost became even more <laughs> annoying because it was like, here was this guy explaining, you know, all these uh, amazing kind, all this amazing Buddhist philosophy in a, in a, in a kind of new package, a Western package, uh, mindfulness, you know, and, and giving it to me on the plate. Why can't I just take what this guy is saying and, and apply it? And I was trying, but I was, you know, really struggling with panic at that time. And I would be going, you know, to, to into a workplace or something and just feeling out of control. And what I began to discover is there's different, different layers to acceptance. You know, it's not just black and white. You don't just suddenly one day you can accept and that's it. You know, it's actually sometimes a better word for acceptance. It can be tolerance because sometimes the emotions are so strong that you just need to be able to show up in your life and tolerate that feeling to still do the things that are important to you so to focus on your values for example the stuff that you really appreciate and and uh, you know is gives you meaning in your life do all those things and tolerate the uncomfortable feeling because that's the kind of first step if you like on the road towards acceptance because if you're not able or willing to do that it's quite hard to to get moving in my experience it's yeah getting comfortable with the uncomfortable mm. Oof. why do you think that because it's you know speaking about pain and it's true that um when i had my last huge fit of pain before my jaw surgery i i was paralyzed i couldn't move and i used um a breath technique which is srt to disconnect some of the the thoughts and emotions I was having in correlation to pain. And no, it didn't take it away because bone eating itself, the pain is always there, but it reduced it from, you know, 100% agony to 70%. And it gives you already a bit of fresh air, if I can say so, in order to go and do something. You have, you can still carry on. But when it comes to emotional pain, why do you think that is that we are constantly running away from it? Why is it more uncomfortable than, I don't know, trying to think of other pains I've had physically, a, a broken arm? Why is it more uncomfortable than a broken arm? I think, you know, with a broken arm, it's obvious. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's my arm. I mean, it's, it's, it's broken. It hurts a lot. I, you know exactly what the problem is. Other people can see the problem. They see that you have an issue. and they will perhaps um, be kind to you because you have this wound, this problem that they can see. And so they, they, can, they can kind of feel compassionate for you. You know, one of the issues with, with mental health is it's unseen a lot of the time. And people are really struggling. People are, you know, particularly now with everything that's gone on for the last two years, you know, there's now a pandemic of mental health. And so many people are really, really struggling. So I think, you know, that's, that's part of it. The fact that so often people just don't open up, they just don't want to like, like I was doing for so many years, they just didn't express the 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 difficult emotions they were going through. And so there you are, on the inside, you've got all of this pain that is equivalent to broken bones or you know, whatever physical symptoms that you could have. Um, but you've got no one to share that with. You've, you're not getting compassion from, from anybody. And so often on top of that, we're not compassionate to ourselves. You know, we, we don't accept that it's, uh, it's uh, you know, that it's okay to suffer, that suffering is normal. We seem to think that we should be superhuman in a way. And, you know, just, you know, be happy all the time or something like culture is a big, a big part of this, you know, our modern, our modern culture is so focused on, on 
always being happy, you know, of always being positive. Now, being positive is a good thing, but always being happy. I mean, this in reality is, is not possible. You know, you can be a positive person, but that doesn't mean that you have to be happy and ecstatic all the time. Of course, everybody's going to have challenges in their life. Things are going to go wrong. There's going to be times where you feel uh, more depressed. There's going to be days where you wake up and you feel anxious. This is, this is a normal thing. But again, our culture tells us that that's wrong, that you shouldn't feel that. And so young people have all these expectations about certain things like relationships as well. You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm 16 now. I should, be, uh, I should be meeting somebody, falling in love, having this amazing experience. And then, you know, all these things are going to happen. And it, so often it just doesn't work out like that. You know, you have heartbreak, you have breakups, you have all sorts of issues and problems. And, you know, life is unfortunately it's a lot of adversity, a lot of challenge. And we, we don't accept it or we somehow don't expect it to be like that. And so I think that's uh, part of the problem as well. The, the toxic positivity thing is I know I, I had a phase I think it must have, uh, no, it was during lockdown. I I was fed up of seeing the same overly happy people like telling me to be happy during lockdown. I was just like, no, no, I've had it and deleted a lot of things because don't need to be reminded that I have to be happy. No, if I want to be miserable today, I'm going to be miserable today. Oh, no, not if I want to be miserable today. Let's correct that. If I <laughs> feel miserable today, I'm going to embrace it and see what I managed to do whilst being miserable, you know, because otherwise you're just trying to achieve standards that are not real. Nobody's happy 90% of the 99.9% .9 of the time. Nobody's happy 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Also, because how can you be happy when you sleep? Like you don't know what you're dreaming about. You don't know that in advance. So you can't plan for that. <laughs> um, facts are facts. But it's, it's, I think social media hasn't helped when it yeah. comes to that the, to set the standards of you know you should be looking a certain way you should be feeling a certain way and it's true that it, it really it doesn't help it pushes people closer to the edge actually yeah i think so i think we can be you know you can be sad you can be struggling with anxiety but you can still be positive in a way you can make that a positive experience by saying it's okay for me to feel like this and i'm still going to just because I feel like this, I'm, you know, it doesn't mean I can't still work on the things I want to work on and do the positive things in my life. However, whilst I'm feeling like this, you know, I'm going to be a bit more gentle with myself. I'm going to let myself off the hook a little bit. You know, I don't need to be super funny at this event. I can just be a bit quieter tonight. That's, that's not a problem. You know, all these kinds of things that you can do when you do have a moment, you know, or, or an extended period of time where for whatever reason you might be struggling and it's okay to let yourself off the hook in, in that way. During that time, do try to keep focused on your values, keep moving and, and doing things because that will help you to, you know, to, to kind of come out of it as well. Absolutely. And speaking of anxiety, you've also mentioned OCD. I am not cultured. Um, I have friends who struggle with OCD and, and I feel a bit bad now because I've hopefully been there for them, but I don't understand what they go through as much as I wish I did. What's the correlation between anxiety and OCD? Mm. So OCD effectively is, is wanting certainty about just about everything um you know if you struggle with with ocd then you're somebody who finds uncertainty very difficult uh, to deal with and so let's take uh, the kind of classic example you know when people think of ocd they generally think of this person who's constantly washing their hands okay well actually you know, most people who have OCD don't actually have that type of OCD. They actually have something called uh, pure O OCD, purely obsessional, which is takes place entirely in the head. However, the name is misleading. It's not purely obsessional because there's always a compulsive element to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be OCD. It would just be obsessions that you have. 
<laughs> it would just be <laughs> oh it wouldn't have yeah, exactly. three letters it would just have less <laughs> yeah yeah so there's always this compulsive element even if it's done in the head but yeah the hand washing uh, example is quite helpful to kind of explore OCD and what it is and so obviously if uh, you have hand washing as your main theme then your obsession is probably going to be around contamination you're you're very worried about being contaminated by something in some kind of way and so you wash your hands compulsively in order to lower your anxiety so generally speaking you have an obsession the obsession gives you uh, a lot of anxiety and then you perform compulsions in order for you to have some control, it gives you a sense of control. When you perform the compulsion, you uh, temporarily lower your anxiety. But unfortunately, every time that you perform a compulsion, you're sending a message to your subconscious mind that you can't deal with that uh, fear or with that situation. Uh, we were talking earlier about the kind of reptilian brain, and it's a very similar kind of concept. You're sending this the, a, a really negative message to your subconscious mind that you can't cope with that thing, that you have to perform a compulsion in order to deal with it. And so every time you perform that compulsion, you reinforce that loop. And it just goes round in circles again and again and again. And this is why, you know, people with the pure O um, style of OCD, the compulsion is actually mental and it normally involves reassurance, reassuring yourself in your head that everything's going to be okay. And people basically need to have that certainty. And this is where the certainty issue comes from. They want to know 100% that nothing bad is going to happen or could happen. And so they go round and round in circles looking for that certainty. But like nothing is ever good enough. You know, it doesn't matter how much you ruminate and that how smart you are you can have the highest iq in the world and have ocd because it's not about your ability to reason it's uh it's a problem uh on an emotional level and and so to in order to to deal with it what we have to learn to do is to let go of that reasoning process of the of the rumination because actually that's the compulsion is keeping us stuck instead we have to learn how to be with those difficult emotions how to accept uncertainty and to let go of the need of, of having to find it to just be okay and be with those difficult emotions. It's a lot easier said than done, yeah. but it's, uh, it can be done. And, and a lot of people are doing it all the time. And thankfully making a lot of progress with OCD these days, the, you know, the, the approaches that we have to it are, are actually very successful. Would it be far-fetched to compare it with forms of addiction because you um, we I mean we in our original conversation we did brush on on the topic of addiction because uh, video games are my life um <laughs> <laughs> but also because you get this sense of you were saying you know reward after you've 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 done the the compulsion a bit like you would in a video game once you've killed the boss and you get all the treasure that's in the chest absolutely yeah so you yeah definitely I, I like to remind my clients of this all the time. You effectively are getting a dopamine hit, you know, in the same way as you do when you uh, when an addict drinks alcohol or takes takes a drug or you know even the lesser kind of addictions um, of of say you know like watching television or video games or you know to be honest like just about anything can be an addiction. <laughs> that's for sure you know, like <laughs> you know so like even you know even cheese could be an addiction why are you, you calling really, me you know. out like that i'm being called out <laughs> you're on french everything. so you know it's like <laughs> it comes with the package it comes with the package <laughs> yeah so um you know it's it's uh when we when we perform a a compulsion um with ocd we get this payoff we we get this rush of of dopamine because you've lowered your your anxiety you've made yourself feel better you've got the reassurance that you were looking for and so this is an addiction kind of loop that you're setting up um every time that you do it and you get that payoff and you feel better 
then of course it means that next time your brain just falls into that same old circuit of of uh, behavior and you're going to keep doing it and when you try to stop doing it you get withdrawal symptoms and actually there's an interesting thing that happens with many people when they start to improve from OCD and this is why I wanted to speak to you about setbacks and things uh, in our previous podcast it's um that you have like progress with OCD is not a linear, you know, it's not a linear process. Generally, what happens is you make some big changes and you begin to to obsess and compulse less. But because it's so addictive, you know, and you've been doing it for a long time, if you manage to avoid performing compulsions for like a week, it's like you can do it, but then you get this massive payback from the OCD. The OCD is angry. It wants your attention. And so it's very clever. It starts coming up with new obsessions, new things to catch you out that perhaps you haven't thought about before. And of course, our brains know us inside out. They know exactly what kind of things make us worry. And so what tends to happen is you start to get better is the brain can then suddenly throw up something from nowhere that completely catches you out and it's almost like a withdrawal you know like it's it's you suddenly really feel the urge more than ever to start performing compulsions and people fall back into that trap but it's important to remember that you know you've already made some progress it can it can feel like when this happens for example that you're going back to square one you know, you're not, you've learned skills, you've made progress, you're not going back to square one. But yeah, you've had a setback, just because you've had a setback doesn't mean that, you know, it's you have to give up, you just need to get back on the horse. And uh, yeah, progress with OCD is, is, is kind of like this. But over time, people really, really make progress and can really start to, to leave OCD behind, you know, and that withdrawal phase you were talking about, how would it manifest itself on an emotional and mental level would it because it's not just I crave it you're not just it's it's not as obvious as say I have an addiction to cheese I I need my fix of goat's cheese there we go I, I just today I need the goat's cheese I can just go to the and get it but is it more of an impulse or will it manifest itself more like a like a down like a like a low mood so it might it might manifest itself in kind of self uh sabotaging you know just almost like because you're so used to, to acting in that way your the circuits in your brain are so well worn that when you're not doing it it's like you feel out of sorts and your brain starts to look for for what's wrong and so um you know you might actually do something called kind of uh mental uh scanning where you just perhaps you wake up in the morning and straight away, automatically, you start scanning for something that's wrong, you know, because you're just in the habit of, of ruminating and you want to find that thing to ruminate about because it gives you a sense of control. It makes you feel like you're doing something in order to feel better, even though obviously in the long run it's making things worse. But so you scan and people scan. And of course, when they scan, they're going to find something. There's something that's going to be that potentially could be wrong or has gone wrong in the past. And then starts the second part of it, which is then to try to problem solve uh, that thing that they found to worry about. And so then they start to analyze and try to problem solve, you know, and, and try to avoid something terrible happening or try starting to reframe something that has already happened in the past to make it seem better in some way to, to lower their anxiety. Is there like um, something you can do when, the, when the, the compulsion is triggered? What is the best way to, I want to say, step away from, from the compulsion and not give in? It sounds like you're resisting some kind of demon, you know, resisting, struggling and all that. But is it how it feels like? And then how can you take a step back from it in order to get yourself back to um, a more stable moment, if that makes sense? Yeah, thankfully, there's, you know, there's all sorts of different approaches that we can that we can take. Mindfulness is a really, uh, a really big part of this, you know, the ability to start moving towards 
discomfort is essential. And this is kind of uh, why I've got into the Wim Hof method about four years ago. You know, I'd ever since, uh, you know, a young child, I've been attracted to the sea. I grew up by the sea. Um, I'm a surfer. So I spent years you know, surfing on the south coast and north coast of Devon and Cornwall. And um, yeah, I mean, that's been a big part of me. And the cold has always been a part of me too, coming from the UK and, and surfing in the winter. It's kind of unavoidable. Um, and I would notice sometimes after surfing for two or three hours in the middle of winter that you come out and you're freezing, but afterwards you feel amazing. You feel this sense of kind of euphoria. And I, I, so I'd always had that kind of, you know, interest in a way with, with the cold. Then I came across the Wim Hof method. And obviously a big part of going into the cold is actually the mindset and learning about acceptance. You know, how can you learn how to accept discomfort? Because this is exactly the same thing as we need to learn to do in order to, to let go of OCD. You know, you have to learn to explore and be with those difficult emotions. Because when you do that, you start learning little by little that you don't have to perform those compulsions. That's a choice. You know, we forget in OCD that you have a choice, that, that you know, we're, we're actually constantly making choices and okay, we're making bad choices right now to perform compulsions, but it's still a choice. And we could make better um, choices, you know, if we want to. And I think acceptance helps you to recognize that, you know, on a more intuitive level. And so doing things like cold exposure, you don't have to do it through cold exposure. The Wim Hof method <laughs> is one example. If you really don't like the cold, don't worry about it because there's other methods too. But, you know, I, I, I kind of talk about the Wim Hof method a lot because for me, it's a really good way of practically understanding, you know, how to deal with the cold. When you're in an ice bath, every single fiber of your body is screaming at you to get the hell out of there. Why are you doing this to me? Absolutely. You don't want to be there. And it's painful. It's, pa it's literally painful. It's literally painful. Your skin gets, I mean, my skin is the way it is, but it, it just goes red so quickly and it, it can look quite scary. I go, I can go red or purple. Um, all the yeah. polar opposite, um, dead white. And in that <laughs> okay. case, I'm in trouble because I need to yeah. the motion yeah. back in. It's deeply unpleasant, but it's true on the other side of that. The first time I did it, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, I, I got to look into it. <laughs> it's it's so true though i mean when people are doing the workshops uh with us like you know they they go down into into the ice bath kind of up to up to their chest and shoulders kind of height so when they get out the entire bottom half of the body is bright red and then above the kind of line there's like a line on their chest and then above that it's white you know so it's uh yeah everyone has that kind of thing with uh with the cold and some people more than others um <laughs> but yes. yeah you yeah you can develop this acceptance in in that situation but of course there's other ways to do that too so one activity is is literally closing the eyes and just scanning the body trying to feel okay where am i feeling this discomfort in the body um am i able to to try to move towards it a little bit can i discover anything else about this right now? Can I perhaps uh, breathe towards it? Can I notice, is it more on the left-hand side or the right-hand side of the body? Does it have a shape? Does it have a texture? Does it have a color? Can I really envision it in a 3D kind of shape? And if I can, can I see it from different angles and positions? And generally, what we're trying to do is build a sense of curiosity. The more curious you can uh, become about the feeling, the more that it, that feeling begins to change. But interestingly, obviously, our purpose is not to change the feeling. Our purpose is just to understand it, to create space for it and allow it to, to be. Because in doing so, the feeling will begin to change on its own. But it's, you know, when it's ready, but it's not our objective for it to go away or to, to transform. Yeah, it's about making, you're making space for the change to take place, basically, yeah. if I'm understanding. Absolutely, story. yeah. Hmm. Interesting, so I was talking to someone about 
change and choice this morning as well. And change is not necessarily something that's pleasant. And it's, yes, it's actually about making space for the new movement, the new thought, the new emotion to find shape within that. So you're just reshuffling the structure of the building so that whatever is there currently is allowed to stay, but we're building a new structure around it so it can not bother us as much. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, so in, in one regard, you know, what we're doing is we're kind of allowing, allowing things to change, allowing energy to, to kind of to move on. You know, so things like the Wim Hof breath work, as we were talking about earlier as well, are very, very helpful for, for that, along with yoga and, you know, all sorts of other ancient practices that, you know, long ago were deemed to be uh, ridiculous and unhelpful and uh, unfortunately were disregarded altogether. Unfortunately, now, um, you know, people are beginning to see, uh, you know, the benefits of, of these kind of approaches. And, uh, you know, people are, are kind of bringing that to the table these days. So, so that's really positive. But yeah, like energy wise, we want to, you know, we want to allow blockages to, to unblock and allow things to, you know, to move at their own speed again. But also, you know, we, we look at things like neuroplasticity. You know, unfortunately, people who've been ruminating for years have built up those circuits in their brain. But fortunately, we also have neuroplasticity. So we can build these new circuits. And the more we focus on new positive habits, the easier it gets for us to keep doing these new positive things. And lo and behold, you know, in, in time, it's, it just becomes easier. And managing OCD becomes the norm instead of something that you can only occasionally do you know you can do it more and more of the time and going back to anxiety and something you said when we first met and it's been sticking it's just it's still there it's still there it's still in my head you said that having ocd was like having an addiction to anxiety and we talked about the neuroplasticity and, and the dopamine if i have anxiety does it necessarily mean that I have OCD or can develop OCD? Hmm. I think anybody can develop OCD mm -hmm. because everybody obsesses sometimes. Everybody compulses sometimes. Um, really, OCD is, is kind of the, the chronic you know, version of it. And, you know, it can happen for all sorts of different reasons, you know, perhaps for whatever reason, you know, you're more prone to, to anxiety, perhaps you have an overactive uh, amygdala, the fear center of the brain, um, perhaps it's behavioral in nature, perhaps it's, it's to do with your environment and, and where you were brought, uh, brought up, you know, many people have traumatic uh, experiences as they're, as they're growing up. And so this can kind of contribute to it. And it's often a coping mechanism. You know, at some point in your life, if you do have OCD, or if you did have OCD at one point, or, you know, perhaps just at one point in your life, you really were getting stuck in rumination, that was probably serving you, it was probably helping you addiction normally is there for that reason no it's like the world was so hard for you at a certain time that you needed to take something or you know use this thing in order for you to turn up and still be still be okay more or less in life and we, we forget that that actually addictions you know on some level were serving us but you know at some point in our life but now they're not and we have to learn to, to let go of them because you know it's not serving us anymore and definitely with OCD you know it it's not serving us at all anymore we have to learn how to let it go it letting go is such a huge part of of mindfulness and of recognizing what what you've been carrying and what you don't have to carry anymore and it's true some stuff and some people are not meant to be here the whole time. Maybe they were helping you at some point. Maybe they were great friends during that part of your life. But some things are here for a season. Some here things are here for a lifetime. There's always a reason. There's always a reason why they're there. I, I very much believe so. Even if it's not the most of obvious, one day it will make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then sad. Sorry. <laughs> 
but it's it's very true. How can you use letting go to serve your OCD? What is if there's like a three-step method or something in order to help releasing? What would it be? Yeah. So I I think um I think I think the first step really is is accepting the the uncomfortable emotions you know it really is or learning how to tolerate it as we were talking about earlier um the next step is recognizing choice you know so there's an amazing book by um victor frankl uh, man's search for meaning which is um when it, it was a, a man a young psychologist at the time who was put into the uh, concentration camp uh, camps along with his wife uh in uh in, in poland and unfortunately his wife was murdered straight away upon entering the camps but he didn't know that and he chose he made a conscious decision to say whilst i'm in this camp i'm not going to focus on how awful it is on how unlucky i am to be here on how outrageous and disgusting it is that other humans could do this to to other humans, because I know if I do that, I'm going to suffer the consequences. I'm not going to survive this experience. And so he chose every day to focus on what he was going to do when he got out of that camp, to focus on the life he was going to have with his wife, on the person that he loved the most in this world, on the family he was going to create, and all these remarkable things. And, and this is what he did. He chose where he was going to keep his attention in this truly most awful of places that you can possibly be in. And the message of, of his story is that you always have a choice. No matter what situation you're in, where you put your attention always comes down to you. And for me, that's just one of the most important messages I think I can relay to people about OCD is, is that having accepted that discomfort or tried to, you know, you've got to a place where you're tolerating it. Now, the next step is choosing where to put your focus. And you have that ability. It may not feel like it. And I know even if you don't have OCD, it's really hard at times to not worry about the negative stuff that's going on. It's all too easy to just focus on the negative, but we don't have to. We always have that ability. And then, you know, this, this guy shows us that. So I think that's uh, the next kind of step is choosing where to put your attention. And then the final step is to, to kind of face your fears and take action because discomfort is where we grow. There's a reason for why you learn a lot in an ice bath because it's so uncomfortable. I think it's the same for, for perhaps for you in your life, you know, with, with performance, putting yourself in front of an, an audience on a regular basis. It, I'm sure it made you grow a lot as a person, being able to do that and tolerate the uncertainty, tolerate the difficulty of putting yourself out there into difficult situations and choosing to live by your values. You know, when you do that and you say, this is what I value, this is what I really want to be doing in my life, I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but little by little, I'm going to set goals and I'm going to keep taking action towards those goals. If you do that and you take that approach, it's amazing what you can achieve in, in my opinion. Absolutely. I was reflecting just because it's not, not just, I mean, maybe when I was younger, my first few performances, there was the anxiety of, oh, I'm going to be in front of people. And then over the years, actually, if I'm, scrolling through some of the, the, the characters and stories I was able to immerse myself into. A lot of them were not happy stories. <laughs> some of these some of these these characters went through some horrible stuff. And it's true that you then the anxiety or the the low episode I would experience was because I was struggling to connect. I wasn't fully connecting to the emotional path of the character and it's because you need to you need to dive in one thing that i really believe artists and performers are here for is we're, we're here to st study humanity we study humans and we we dive in we're just going through every layer of emotion and exploring it physically but also mentally and emotionally 
And that's why it's so important to have release practices for yourself as well, so that you're not taking the character with you, because some of these people are horrible people, and you don't want to live with them on the daily. <laughs> you need to know how to access that person if, if you need to, for yeah. performance reasons, but you need to also put a safety net around who you are, so that you're never confused between the, the stories and the people. Because the story of the person you're performing is not yours. And that's something where letting go is a letting go practice and a relaxing and a release practice has been really, really helpful. But mm. yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Fantastic. <laughs> it's been a wonderful, yeah, it's been, I feel I've learned. <laughs> I feel like as, as someone who, who know a, a few people who struggle with OCD, I feel more aware and also just like, I know next time, a friend comes to me with an issue i feel a lot better armed to actually help them towards feeling better in that moment uh oh this is so good thank you i hope everyone oh. as well listening um has been able to learn something from this because i definitely have and if people want to learn more good friend where can they find you on the internet <laughs> well they can head over to uh, my website which is www.robertjamescoaching.com or they can find me on Instagram at uh, robertjamescoachinguk. Uh, What's the name of your podcast, my friend? The podcast is the OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. So uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would be wonderful if, you're, uh, if your listeners want to check it out. Yeah, we, I just passed 150 episodes, which I'm super happy about being a real roller coaster of uh, an experience um, doing this podcast. And like you say, it's such a wonderful experience being able to, to meet people such as yourself and have these fantastic conversations. I enjoy it so much. So, you know, it's a real privilege. So thank you for, for having me on. Thank you. And thank you for having me again on your podcast. And thank you for agreeing to reflect because also I feel podcasting where there's a lot of reflection that goes on before we say something. I mean, I don't know about everyone, but that's how I do things. And I feel that's how you do things. So, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to everyone who tuned in to this week's Mindful Chat. Your regular fix is still available every Thursday. Robert, thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye. <laughs> bye bye.